Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today on the podcast, we have a very special guest, Drew Masuko, known as the Chupacabra. Drew, welcome to the podcast. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So, Drew, we go back to 1994. We were in the same justice school class from January to March of that year. And then we spent some time in Guantanamo Bay together. So it's good to see you, my friend. Great to see you. So, Drew, as we record this, you are headed into retirement. That is that is true. By the time this gets released, you will be retired as a United States Naval Reservist in the JAG Corps. Is that correct? That is correct. But for those of you who know, Drew, I said this earlier about him. It's almost like he spent most of his time doing active duty uh, stents with a little bit of civilian reserve time. So, Drew, why don't you give us a little bit of your overview of your career, what you've done, and how you've kind of been a revolving door? Sure. I, I may be kind of like the, the unicorn of reservists, I suppose. I, I've done equal amount of time in reserves and active. I'm about 15 and 15. I'll be coming up on 29 and a half years here. did my first two tours in the Navy, then I got out because at that time, my family didn't want me to be part of the Navy. So I got out and did a public defender stint for a couple of years and then had a falling out with my first wife and we got divorced and the Navy came knocking on my door and asked me to come back in. And I did. So I went back on active duty, did two more tours, ended at Naval Air Station Jacksonville, where I got out in 2003. And at the end of my tours, this is kind of like when uh, Vieques bombing range cases were winding down, but they needed a Spanish-speaking JAG to go down there. And being at Naval Air Station Jacks, it was a logical fit for me to go back down there, go back down to Puerto Rico, where I have family. And so I went down to Puerto Rico, did the Vieques cases, and, and signed on with the U.S. Attorney's Office, first as a Salsa, and then I got hired there. And that's where I spent the bulk of my career with the Department of Justice for about 14 and a half years. And 2018, I made the jump to become the criminal chief in the U.S. Virgin Islands, where I'm currently employed by the Department of Justice at the U.S. Virgin Islands. Now, interspersed between that time comes the other large portion of my active service, and that's my deployments to Iraq, to Guantanamo, Horn of Africa, and most recently, Afghanistan. I'm currently at SOCOM doing a year of active service with Captain Greg Bart. And now you're headed into retirement and you're considering your employment opportunities again. Yes. It's funny because my career has kind of matured to the point where the Virgin Islands was a great place for me to grow and, and learn how to become part of management and within Department of Justice. But given, you know, a lot of things happen, change of uh, presidents and change of U.S. attorneys. And for me, the, it wasn't really a good fit, even though it was real close in the Virgin Islands to Puerto Rico. It's difficult to straddle both islands, you know, have a good family life and a good professional life. So I'm at the point where I'm kind of looking to see what other options could be available for me. So, Drew, you've got a great seat to judge. What can JAGs interested in DOJ work? How should they pursue such employment with the Department of Justice? That's a real good question. I think First of all, I think the SALSA pro program, the SALSA track that the Navy has with the Department of Justice is a great way to get your foot in because 
It used to be, you know, back in the 90s, the practice was different. So judge advocates were really hired a lot by the Department of Justice because we had a lot of trial experience. You know, you get, come out of law school, you go to a NILSO or at that time, the, you know, when the, the TSOs or the RILSOs, and you would get in a court. And as a young, you know, four or five year attorney, you get some trial work and you do things that your other uh, peers who got out of law school didn't do. So it was a great opportunity. But the practice in the Navy has kind of evolved in the last 20 years. And so you don't find that judge advocates with four or five years of experience have the type of courtroom experience that we had back when we started. But the good thing is Department of Justice hasn't caught on yet. So I think judge advocates, whether you're Navy, Air Force, Army, Coast Guard, Marines, have a reputation for a solid courtroom advocacy and and a solid uh, practice in the courtroom. So another way that judge advocates can really get a leg up is to let these offices see them being a salsa, a salsa or, or having interaction with the Department of Justice. What about these specialty roles that they have at the headquarters? You know, I know two or three or four JAGs who have gone on to DOJ headquarters here in D.C. doing different kind of jobs. So if you're applying for one of those jobs, how would you go about approaching that? Would you tout your SJA experience? Some of these are really niche positions. Yeah. Well, all of the judge advocates have a leg up in the national security field. And that is an area where I think we can really capitalize because most judge advocates will touch on some kind of national security issues or in that lane. And that's a really novel and developing area in the Department of Justice. I mean, there's NSA, DIA, Department of Justice, especially after January 6th, they have a huge need to get young attorneys with a lot of experience in national security laws. So I think that's a great area. Also cyber. I know a lot of guys are really getting into the cyber field and the technology fields. If you can use that as a way to transition into a DOJ job, that's also another excellent avenue to do that. You mentioned young guys, but what about old guys like you and me? (laughs) Well, I'm finding, so that's, that's a really good question too. I think that as an older and more mature JAG, you would have to sell, sell the, (laughs) I can see you smiling, but your audience can't. You have to just sell your experience as a manager, as a writer. Another thing that SJAs do a lot is write, and DOJ is looking for people with strong writing background, especially if you're real familiar with cyber law and you know acquisition law. If you can write, that's another huge advantage that you have. So those are ways you can get into justice. And, and unfortunately, the other thing is just knowing people. If you know people who are there and they can speak up for you, that still, today's age, goes a long way. Now, you must be in a unique position having both U.S. attorney time in the Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands area and the military background. But does that give you any kind of leg up if you were to look at the DOJ, for example, in D.C.? Funny you ask that. I think to some extent it does. But what I've come to experience or encounter is I think... The way I've kind of straddled both the active and reserve side in my career, it's hurt me and helped me in some ways. It's helped me because I am pretty current in both worlds. You know, I'm still current in Navy judge advocate stuff. I'm familiar with the MCM changes. I know all the stuff that's happened in, in, you know, Navy military justice, as well as other developing areas of law. And same thing in, in Department of Justice. But what it's done, though, is I've found that uh, USERA is live and well in Department of Justice. And, and when I say that, I mean that I think that the fact that I've deployed five times in the last you know, 15 years, it's hurt me in justice, whether 
it was an overt penalty or not. I think that I found that part of the reason why I didn't promote up through the ranks in justice is because I was deploying so frequently. Actually, I had one U.S. attorney actually say, hey, I came back from Iraq in 2010, and the guy that I trained was now a supervisor. And I was kind of like, hey, and, and he ended up being my supervisor. So I was like, whoa, what's this? And the U.S. attorney at the time told me, she said, if you were here, who knows? And I was thinking to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. That is a USERA violation right there. But when she realized what she said, she kind of backtracked and was like, well, you know, and he's been doing great things. But the fact of the matter is, is I missed out on some opportunities because I was deployed. And that was chances for me to, to move up within the ranks within DOJ. Same thing on the military side, I think, and partly because most of my active time was deploying, you know, I got the kind of uh, frequent deployer label and, you know, I didn't do the traditional XO tour. Maybe I hung around, you know, the snake eaters too much. And so I didn't really fit in the JAG prototype for accession up through the ranks as well. So I think while I've had a great career in both fields and continue to have, enjoy what I do, I think that I treaded a very dangerous line that has, you know, both helped me and hurt me over the years. With your JAG Corps career now coming to a close, would you ever consider outside government or is the government just it provides the lifestyle and the, and the work-life balance and the job satisfaction that you seek? So that's a good question. I think that for me, I've just become so accustomed to the regular paycheck. I never wanted to have to hunt down a paycheck. One, I was always afraid of going to corporate and having to bill 1,600 hours. I never wanted to be that guy. I was very comfortable in the fact that I knew my paycheck would be coming every two weeks. And that worked well for me because it's a decent paycheck. But now that I'm looking at, hey, I'm going to probably be getting you know, my retirement pay, in, in, at least for the Navy, in the next you know, six to eight months, I am looking at the possibility of just stepping out and doing my thing. I've always just been afraid of having that bad month where, you know, you may not be able to make ends meet. And so that's why the government service has always been a real comfortable thing for me to do. But yeah, I'm looking. And in fact, I'm thinking about taking another bar. My wife wants to, to end up in Florida one day. And so possibly, you know, I could, you know, go out and do my thing in Florida, depending on what happens here in the government service in the next couple of years. Well, here's a crazy thing, Drew. I'm taking that Florida bar as well. We talked about that. And my wife wants to move to Florida. So I think we just found a uh, two thirds of a law firm right now. You know, maybe <laughs> once in a while we'll actually go to the office, but I think we just solved that. Uh, again, you've had a very unique perspective. And a part of it is from going from the active duty side is you're stepping into the unknown. We talk frequently on this podcast about how we switch from job to job to job. But then when we go to step out in the civilian world, all of a sudden we don't have a book to bring with us of business, or we don't have the specific experience that a lot of these firms or corporate entities are looking for. And so we have a fear of making that jump, even though we've been lifelong learners. That's a very real fear. That's, I think even I experienced that, which is why I've kind of tried to stay within government service. I mean, I like my paycheck every couple of weeks, but there comes a point that whether you want to or not, as you know, you've got to leave the service. So what would you tell people that are punching out and thinking about a DOJ or a U.S. attorney's job? I mean, you've kind of already gone through it. If if you have the court martial experience, but like you said, the practice has changed, not only on the military justice side, where 
and at least in the Navy, the courts martial number have gone way down. But also on the, I think on the civilian side where the cases have evolved to things that maybe we don't deal with that much in the military. Right. I think that the things that like senior judge advocates who are stepping out for the first time can really sell our critical thinking skills and their writing ability. I mean, by the time you get to be an 06 in the, in the Navy and as a judge advocate, you've advised two and three-star generals or admirals. I mean, you've been in that situation where you are providing sound legal advice to the heads of corporations, in essence. You know, when you're the SJA you know, for a major command, that carries weight. And you can say that, hey, you've been in those board meetings and had to advise these top-level executives, albeit military, of proper legal courses of action. I think that that goes a long way. You know, you, you can sell that. That's, that's your currency. And like I said, I found that most judge advocates have excellent research and writing skills, which just simply is, is a dying art. A lot of people tell me that, you know, leadership, 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 we bring leadership. And I've asked them, what is the leadership look like? And sort of the message I got is, you know, just being there being plugged in and a willingness to sort of insert yourself, not in a, an intrusive way, but in a, as an enabling, as, as a force multiplier, if you will. Do you agree with that or do you see it different on the outside? Well, uh, of course, there's a million different styles of leadership, but I think that being naval officers as well as lawyers, especially, we have kind of a, we have a dual leadership hat. You know, we we have to do the ethical legal thing, but we also have to do the thing that fits within our, our organization, the United States Navy or wh whichever branch you're in. I think that that's definitely something that you can tap into when you're promoting yourself to the commercial world. That's the thing about being a judge advocate is we have a higher standard. Not only are we lawyers, but we're officers. If a company doesn't hire you because you're the best lawyer in the world, they may look at you as a leader or an officer and someone of, you know, of that ethical, moral standard that we're supposed to have as officers in the military. You mentioned the, the term promote yourself. I find that's something that a fair amount of judge advocates have a hard time doing because in our service culture, you're seen as support staff and you're not sort of the, the center of attention. Do you find it hard for people to promote themselves when they're leaving the service than the interactions that you've had? Or do they quickly get a handle of that and be able to sell themselves? Well, I've seen success stories and I've seen failures. I think that what you need to do and what a lot of naval officers need to do is learn how to translate your experience into relevant civilian, whatever the commonality is, you know, so you just... You have to learn to speak in, in the civilian terms, you know, so things that you take for granted in the military, ethics and, you know, standards of conduct and things like that, we have to make them translatable into the civilian world. I think that that's the key to really promoting yourself is saying, hey, in the military, you know, it's this, but in the civilian world, it's this, like EO, you know, we're all ethics advisors. If you're an 04 above in the Navy, you have been an ethics advisor and you've conducted ethics training to hundreds of people. That really has a lot of weight in the civilian role because they're not used to people who can come into a, to a Fortune 500 company and teach, you know, standards of conduct or ethical conduct and bring that to the table. So I think it's the important thing of, of promoting yourself is translating military speak into civilian speak. I tend to agree with that. And one of the advice I got, for example, was, yeah, you do ethics, but out here it's ethics and compliance. Consider getting a compliance certificate, even though you've done it, having that certificate is an investment that tells prospective employers you speak the language there too. 
What are some other advice that you would have to either old guys like you and me or young people retiring or leaving the service now in this climate? I mean, we're coming out of COVID. You hear you hear we're in a recession, but you also hear that people aren't working anymore because they, they just stopped with the great resignation. You have any visibility on the landscape out there writ large in the civilian world? Well, I think the biggest thing that really is going to be a, a game changer, especially for, you know, even judge advocates coming out, is the ability and the capability we have of teleworking. And that's something that, you know, was born in COVID, essentially. I mean, there was a, a strong resistance to teleworking. I know in my office in, in the Virgin Islands, uh, my boss was like, nope, no teleworking. You know, it was not permitted. But I think COVID you know, kind of opens everybody's eyes to show that you don't necessarily have to be sitting behind a desk and a computer, you know, 40 hours a week to be productive. And what that does is it gives professionals the ability to do things from farther away. So it allows you to expand your horizon. Say you're in DC, but the job you're looking for is in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, why can't you do that from DC? And I think that's another possibility. And most of the stuff we do, unless you're a courtroom guy, unless you're in the court all the time, 80, 85% of what lawyers do is really stuff that you don't need to be in an office to do. It's writing, it's researching, it's, it's communicating, it's interviewing. It's things that you can actually do via Zoom, for example. And I, and I think that that is huge, especially in the legal profession, because it'll, it gives us a, just a much broader market to tap into. If you could do it over again, would you do anything different? I do, I'd have done, yeah, a hundred things different. Probably one is I, I probably never would have got out of the Navy originally. I think that, you know, one of the reasons I stayed in so long and that I did so many deployments is because I loved being on active duty. And I think that, you know, the decision to get out of the Navy, you know, or get out of the military is something that everybody has to face at one point in time. You know, sometimes you just, hey, you had a good run. But if you do it, do it strategically. Don't do it as a, hey, I'm, I'm a JAG and I'm going to get out and find a job. And I know, you know, unless you're that Harvard grad, you know, in the top 10% of your class, you have to really strategically think your exit from the military. I kind of did it by the seat of my pants and I got lucky the way I did it. But I, I think that, you know, and, and I'm, I'm sure most judge advocates realize that the military presents them a really excellent opportunity to hone their skills and to really perfect their craft in a relatively insulated environment. So when you do make that chance and that decision to jump, whether it's at 20 years, 25 years or, or six years, I think you should do it strategically. Have that vine. You don't want to just you don't want to be like Tarzan and reaching and there's no vine there. You want to you want to have that vine and, and really plan out the way you your exit. And I think the, the great thing that the, the skill bridge, you know, these workshops now that are available and this, these tap opportunities that are available now, you should really take advantage of all of them because that will set you up uh, for success in the long run. I mean, we didn't have LinkedIn when I got out. What's your timeline now? Your, is it your retirement date September 1st or your ceremony September 1st? So my last day of activity is 31st of August. My retirement is September 1st. And then I'm going to do some sick leave because obviously I'm going to, I have some, some medical things and some VA things that I need to take care of. And I got to take advantage of them while I'm here in Tampa. I'm at a crossroads right now trying to decide what the best career path for me is because I'm also fairly senior in the Department of Justice now or in, in government service so that if I wanted to, I could retire 30 years federal experience and 56 and a half years old in just a matter of, you know, two years. So I need to figure out if, 
the next job, if I go to, is it just going to be a transition thing for me to really get out of justice altogether? Or am I going to try to just, you know, plant that flag somewhere and just ride it out till I'm 65? And I just kind of need to make that decision. And, and a lot of that's family-based. You know, my, my son's going to college in, in 2024, go blue. And my daughter will be going into high school next year. So a lot of these decisions are just really going to be based on how can I set my family up best and, and what are the best family decisions? Because I'm, hey, I've had a great run at both the Navy and Department of Justice. So I really just kind of am looking for what is going to be the best quality of life for my family in the next five or 10 years. So your job search, you have a little bit of time because of that sick leave and things that you need to take care of. Well, I mean, I've got a job. So I go, so I get off this, uh, this active stint here at SOCOM. Uh, and I go back to Department of Justice uh, in the Virgin Islands, uh, you know, and, and a lot of people are like, what? You don't want to be in the Virgin Islands? And, and, you know, it's an interesting job. It's challenging. But for me, I can see myself doing other things. And so, yeah, I, I'm going to either go back to the Virgin Islands and, and see see how that develops. Or I've got a couple other, you know, irons in the fire that are presenting me some interesting possibilities. Well, Drew, I just thought it was the wine that made you look so relaxed. But the fact that you have a job probably adds another dimension to that. Right. Well, Drew, can you believe that we've already been going 26 minutes? Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I understand. You're not taking up my time. We just want to make these a half hour to to keep people coming back for more next week. Mm -hmm. Well, hey, then I will cut it short because I could talk to you. You're, hey, we're old friends. Anybody in the in the JAG community, if you're in the Tampa neighbor in the Tampa neighborhood in, around uh, September 1st, although you won't hear this, but uh, I'm going to reach out to a couple old friends and see if they want to come down. Uh, but it's it's been a great run. But I don't know if you've seen Top Gun, and I don't want to be a spoiler. I have. You have. So, well, for those that are listening, uh, plug your ears if you haven't seen Top Gun. But there's that scene where uh, Goose looks at Mav and he says, hey, you got to let go. I tell you, Drew, it wasn't the Goose uh, Rooster storyline. It wasn't the Iceman story. What got me emotional was seeing Carrier Ops and knowing that I'll never do that again. (laughs) So, ladies and gentlemen, the Chupacabra, Drew Masuko. Hey, great talking to you. Take care and we'll be in touch. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.